Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? If you have a Bible, open it to Malachi chapter 1. We started a series in Malachi last week, and we're going to finish up chapter 1 this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to read Malachi chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. It's been a long time since I was in the army and had to write what is called an operations order, which is what a lieutenant or a captain or a colonel or some officer has to write to describe the mission and how the operation is going to be ordered. That's why it's called an operations order. And there's a very specific way that you're supposed to write that operations order. I believe, if memory serves me correct, there are five paragraphs. Important in any operation order is not only the task of what your unit or your soldiers are supposed to accomplish, but the purpose. In fact, there's a kind of army value that any time a commander or superior asks a subordinate to do anything, they give them a task and they should always give them a purpose. Why they are doing what they are doing. Why do we exist? Why are we here? What's, what's this all about? Why do we gather to sing and why do we live our lives? Why do we go to school and why do we learn trades? Why, why do we go to college, and why do we have jobs? Why do we do what we do? There can be a kind of monotony to life that can cause us to lose, it can obscure the purpose of the mission of our being. We exist to bring glory to God. That's why you exist. In fact, that's Paul's summation at the end of Romans chapter 11. After he explains the gospel so thoroughly in the first 11 chapters of Romans, before he gets into application, he ends by saying, in a a kind of doxological exclamation of praise, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be all glory forever. So you, I, this church, everything, every particle, every, even the remotest molecule in the, in the furthest edges of the universe exists to bring glory to God. Everything does. Every, every president, every dictator, every, every pagan, every Christian, every nation, every economic market, every household, everything Everything, a completely exhaustive, comprehensive view of everything exists to bring glory to God. And that's why you exist. And that's why I exist. And that's what our text is about this morning. It's about Israel's worship and how they were getting worship wrong and how God was correcting them. It's about Israel's polluted worship. And as we read this text and learn from 
God's rebuke and correction of Israel and their priests primarily, we can learn about, about worship and how important it is in our lives. So let me read verses 6 through 14 of chapter 1. Remember the context. God is about to, through the prophet, rebuke and upbraid and correct and exhort Israel. But he begins Malachi by reminding them, as we looked at last week, of his love, his unconditional, sovereign, free, electing, choosing love. Not because of anything that they have done, but he loves them because he loves them. And that's important to start with because he's about to, to correct them, to bust their chops. But he starts, he reminds them that I love you because I love you. Now, roll up your sleeves and sit down and listen to me, is what God is saying to Israel. Verses 6 through 14. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand? Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has, made, who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations." Amen. Let me pray. Lord, your word is truth, and you sanctify your people through the truth. Sanctify us this morning. Humble us. Revive us. Your word is true. It's good. It's holy. May it correct us and rebuke us and challenge us and
subdue us. May it wound us and heal us. And may it cause, may it, may it, may it accomplish what you intend for it to bring about in the lives of your people and in any that are in this room that don't know Jesus, that you intend to save. Lord, do your will and help us. Help me, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we look at this text in Israel's polluted worship, I want us to just think about a definition or wrapping our minds around what we mean when we say worship. What, what is worship? Well, really, worship is a, a combination of, of old English words, worth, worthship, assigning worth, giving, displaying, putting on display the worth of God. That's where this word worship comes from in English. We just spent a long time in Romans. When we think about worship, I'm sure many of us, our minds are drawn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And in other words, in light of everything that I've said up to this point, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, the gospel, in other words, is what he's saying, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so Paul is telling us there that in response to all that God has done, because of his mercies, give all of yourself to God. That's your, your reasonable service. That's just, that's just the baseline. That, that's the clear, reasonable response for a person as they stare in view of God's mercies of all that he has done. So here, here's just a, a definition, my not, not certainly in, in any way complete definition of worship, but just to kind of wrap our minds around this idea of what worship is, which is the context of, of this passage in Malachi chapter 1. Here's, here's my feeble attempt at a definition just to give us a starting point before we work through this text. Worship is our right response to all that God is with all that we are. And I, I, I've kind of pieced that together from a bunch of different definitions of worship from trusted theologians that I've read this week. I mean each word intentionally, our right response, not just any response, but a, a biblical response, a, a response in the way that God has prescribed it, and that's important that we'll see in, in a bit, to all that God is, to all that He's revealed, to, to all of His attributes, to all of His glory. To, that's why we are worshiping Him, to put on display in full measure all that God has revealed to us with all that we are. So one thing I want to be careful to say before we get into this text is that when we use the word worship, Worship, clearly, I hope you understand, is more than just the hour and a half or longer, if the preacher is long-winded, that we gather together on Sunday mornings. It's more than just our, our corporate gathering where we are singing and reading and praying and preaching or receiving communion or watching baptism. It's the totality of the Christian life. It's our actions. It's our attitudes. It's our home life. It's our public life. It's our, our private life. It's our thought life. It's our, and clearly, it's our church life. 
It's not just when we physically gather together with other believers as a local church. I want to be careful to say that, and I may even repeat that theme occasionally as we work through this text. But, but, the context of this passage clearly seems to be the gathered worship of Israel. And so, while I want to emphasize that all of life is worship, and there's broad application for this text to all of life, there is something specific and important and crucial and central to the life of God's people about how they gather and what they do when they gather and the posture of their hearts when they gather. And so I want us to look at that in particular as our particular point of focus and application this morning. Let's look again at the text, work through it slowly, and look at Israel's polluted worship. Remember, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. It's a prophet. It is speaking into the historical narrative at the end of the, 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 the chronological end of the Old Testament, about 400 years before Christ arrives on the scene in the incarnation. And it's at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, which are the last really historical books of the Old Testament, And in Ezra and Nehemiah, those are historical narratives that are recounting the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem that was destroyed when the Babylonians came and took the uh, Israelites captive. And then the Persians came and conquered the Babylonians. And now Israel is not under Babylonian captivity, but they're under Persian captivity. All of this is under God's sovereign hand. God, in fact, sent the Persians to conquer the Babylonians so that his people would be under subjection of a more merciful king that would allow them to go back to the the city of Jerusalem to rebuild it. And that's the end chronologically of the Old Testament. Ezra, Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the city, the rebuilding of the temple. God's people, at least a faction of them, are back in the land, but they're still under Persian rule. They're still suffering the consequences of this, their disobedience, which has been ordained by God. And that's where we are in the Old Testament. And Malachi is speaking a word to them at the end, the last words of the Old Testament, a word of rebuke to them for their half-hearted worship. So let's look again at verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, this is God speaking to Israel, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? So God is using a kind of, 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 of lesser to greater argument here. I mean, if, if earthly fathers and masters deserve honor and respect, how much more do I? Everyone understands that. But Israel Here's, the, here's the, the, the indictment. Israel, God's people, who knew God as their father, were not treating him as their father. And God asks, where is my honor? Where is the reverence? This word honor in the Old and New Testament in Hebrew and Greek is so rich. In, in the Old Testament, it's this, this Hebrew word kabod, which means weight, heaviness, glory. Where is your posture that when you gather, it's obvious to the nations of the weight and the heaviness and the glory of God? Where is my esteem? Where's my reverence? 
Where's my honor? Where's my kabod? Where's my weight? Where's my gravity when you gather? Where is my fear? God asks. And primarily, he's laying the blame at the feet of the religious leaders, at the priests. It says there that they despised his name. You priests, you despise his name. And they looked at this word despise means to look down on with contempt. So, so picture this. The religious leaders of God's people are going through the motions and are so disillusioned or so selfish or so carnal that they are actually looking down on God, which was their primary duty to lead God's people into the right worship of God. They are despising, looking down on God with contempt in front of the people. I mean, things are a mess. That's the point here in verse 6. And when we get into chapter 2 next week, he's going to zero in on the leaders of Israel and, and, and lambaste them. Verse 7, how, they ask, how have we despised your name at the end of verse 6? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is, is that not evil? So God is saying, you're giving me second best. And God had prescribed in his law about how his people were to approach him. Primarily, we read in Leviticus and other places in the Mosaic Law where God's people are to give him their best. Now, friends, we have to understand that it's not, this is not a works-based notion here. Remember, God starts Malachi saying, not give me this and then I will love you. He starts Malachi by reminding Israel of his unconditional, unmerited, unearned love for them. And because of that, because God has done this for you, because he's loved you, because he's created you, because he's rescued you, now as your right response to him, you give him your very best. It's so important that we remember the order of that. We even see this gospel order in the Old Testament. This is what God has done. In light of that, this is what you must do. That's the gospel. Religion says this is what you must do in order for God to do something for you. That's not, that's not the gospel. That's religion. And Malachi, even here we see this order. I have loved you, the beginning of Malachi. And now in light of the fact that I've loved you, here, do, give me your best. But what were they doing? They were offering him blind animals, lame, sick. I mean, it's kind of like it reminded me as I was thinking about this text. I, I kind of dubbed it just from my own heart, like canned food drive worship. You know, it's like when, you're, um, when your kid's elementary school teacher sends home a little notice and we're doing a food drive for, you know, some ministry in town, maybe, you know, some downtown one of the ministries, the Valley Rescue Mission or something, or one of these wonderful places that do great work. And you just kind of reach into the back of your pantry for some, some, some sweet corn that's been sitting back there since 1998, right? And you just grab it and you throw it out again, you know, just kind of, oh man, your teacher, yeah, just, get out. Yeah, just, and that's, that's the attitude here, just this back of the pantry <laughs> expired, Canned food worship. Now here, God, here's a, here's a blind cow, a lame one. This one's, this one's got three legs and, you know, it just kind of hangs out in the back of the pasture. You, you can take that. That's the attitude. 
And what does God say? He says, okay, try that with your Persian governor. You're under captivity of the Persians. Try giving that to the Persian governor. Look at the middle of verse 8. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, I mean, the, that's, a, that's a rhetorical question, meaning no, he's not. You know, try, try an offering, you know, just like when the, the IRS sends you your taxes. It's like just, you know, I'm, I'm, let, me, let me scrounge around in the ashtray and see what I can give to you. Here you go, IRS. Will, will the governor accept that? No, I think it got a little personal. Somebody, some of you were kind of wiggling like, oh man, taxes. That's the picture here. And then God says in verse 9, and now God is being sarcastic here in verses 8 and 9. He's being sarcastic. He's saying, try that with your governor, the Persian governor. And now, verse 9, you entreat, favor of, you entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to you, of, to, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? The audacity God is, 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 is critiquing here and highlighting of the priests of Israel to expect God's favor in return. Friends, we are like this, aren't we? We don't prioritize the Lord, but then when things get in a pinch, we ask, in fact, inspect, expect and are disappointed in God when he doesn't just bail us out. And look at, well, look at how God concludes his indictment here, or look at what God says in response to this type of canned food worship. Verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hands, O oh God. <laughs> it's verse 10. It, I mean, it, it, it's convicting, and it's also, it's, it's, God is basically saying, when you guys gather and you worship, it's so bad. I wish that there was just one of you that would have the courage to stand up and cancel church. That's what God is saying. Oh, that there was somebody that would just shut the doors. Cancel Christmas. Go home. Go home. Eat Cheetos. Lounge on the couch. Take a nap, but don't do this because it's actually working against you. God just says, stop it, please. Stop it. It's kind of like um, a coach kicking the team off of the practice field because their practice is so bad. You know, you, some of you that maybe played sports and the coach just gets so frustrated with you. And he just, just stop it. Stop it. Get, get out of here. Hit the showers, boys. You stink. Literally and physically. Or figuratively, yeah. You know, you know what I'm saying. We see a picture of this type of seriousness, of this, this, this kind of fire that people are just offering in vain. And the, the picture here in verse 10 is you're, you're you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. In other words, burning the sacrifices, which was part of the, the law in Leviticus, that they would burn the sacrifice to God and it would be incense to him. And there's this picture in the Old Testament that gives us a picture of just how serious God was in prescribing to his people how they were supposed to approach him. There's this, just this 
really stark little story in Leviticus chapter 10 about the sons of Aaron. Let me read it to you. Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who was the, the, the leader, the priest, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized, or some versions say strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses, okay, so there's two sons. They have disobeyed God. They've been haphazard in the way they've approached him. Instead of doing what God prescribed, they came up with their own little, you know, sparklers and started the fire on their own in a way that God did not prescribe. And God brings fire down and kills them right in front of dad and uncle. And this is what verse 3 says. This is Pops and uncle's response to God killing these two nephews and sons for offering haphazard, unauthorized, strange worship. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Uncle says, apparently God's pretty serious. And Dad says, nothing. That's a scene. That's how serious God is in the Old Testament about how his people approach him. And then he concludes, his, 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 his not concludes, but he, he moves on in verse 11. He says, for from the rising of the sun, this is God speaking, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So why is verse 11 so important? It tells us why our worship is so important because God intends for the gathering of his people to be a display that he uses for the nations to see and be drawn to God. Worship in its essence should be a kind of evangelism. That's the point. That's what's going on here. That's why it's so important. God's glory, God's renown is on the line. That's why God is so serious about it because it's not just about us and our experience or the people of God getting what they want out of it. It's for the glory of God and the display of God and the saving of those that he's drawing to himself. It's not about us is what God is saying here. I think of Genesis chapter 12 where God when he creates the very beginning stages of his creation of Israel, when he calls this man Abraham, Abram, who later becomes Abraham, he says to Abram in Genesis 12 that I'm going to make a nation through you, and I'm going to bless you, and through you, through that nation, I am going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And that purpose for Israel in the Old Testament is a kind of shadow that points towards the purpose of the church in the New Testament that Springer read for us from 1 Peter chapter 2 in the scripture reading that we are called, we're a holy nation called to proclaim the mercy of God. We don't exist for ourselves, but we exist to worship him so that people would see it and God would use it and draw others to himself. 
What's on, on the line in our worship is not our feels, not our experience, not even merely our edification, as important as that is, but it is the glory of God and the purpose of God and the redemption of all that He intends to save. And then he concludes in verses 12, 13, and 14 with more indictment. He says, But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. So in addition to these animals, they were to offer fruit and grain and all sorts of produce on this table that even the priests ate from. And the people were offering polluted fruit, polluted produce, in verse 13, there's a kind of squabble even between the priests and the people. But you say, meaning the priests, what a weariness this is. Look, look what we're getting for serving God. I mean, we offered lame cows to God and the people are giving us, you know, apples with worms in it. I mean, come on. What a, man, this is so hard. What a weariness this is. The priests are complaining in verse 13. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or, lame, or is lame or sick and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Verse 14, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So not only their actions, but their attitudes stunk. They were bringing diseased and lame and stolen animals, and polluted fruit. And they were complaining about it. Their actions were bad. Their attitudes were bad. And God reminds them and us what is on the line on the second part of verse 14, where he says, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name, the purpose of why you are to worship me rightly, is because my name will be feared among the nations. Well, Israel's not in a good place in chapter 1. Amen? <laughs> what can we learn from Israel's polluted worship? Well, we can look at it and say, let's not do that. And we can consider worthy worship. I want us now to think, as we conclude, some aspects of worthy worship in light of the polluted worship that we see from Israel in this chapter. Let's look at what worthy worship is biblically. And I'm speaking in broad categories. And again, I want to say that you can take each of these and apply them more broadly to all of life, to our home life, to our work life, to, to our thought life, to, to public life, to all of life. Remember, worship is our right response of all that we are to all that God is. But for this passage and for our point purposes this morning, I want us to zero in on our gathered worship. So worthy worship is one, first, is God-focused. Worthy worship is God-focused. I read it earlier, Romans eleven thirty six. 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. When we come into this building as a body of believers, as a local church, we must remember and always keep before our eyes that our focus is first and foremost on God and His glory. We see that in the text, that clearly the people had forgotten that. In, 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 in verse 11, he, he reminds them, it's from the rising of the sun to the setting of my name, to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. It will be offered to my name. 
For my name will be great among the nations. Verse 14, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. So when we gather together, we are gathering here first and foremost to focus on God. And that should set the tone. And I want to I speak very practically about what we do when we gather together as a local church. And in a way, I want to I help encourage us and instruct us and remind us of some things that, that are important underpinnings of our philosophy of worship here at Crosspoint. We, when we gather, we want to focus on God. And my concern with much of church culture in our time is that it's not focused on God, but I think in an earnest but unbiblical desire, it's too focused on the people and not focused on God. But the best thing that we can do for people is to not to focus on them, but on God. Now, by God-focused, I don't mean an ambiguous general religiosity. I think God-focused worship is is, is two things. It's word-centered and it's spirit-empowered. The Bible gives us a prescription there's, there's a kind of regulation of the worship of God's people that we see as we piece together and we read God's Word. In the New Testament in particular, we read and we see and we get a picture into the early church and how they worshiped and how God prescribed us to worship Him. And we see that there are some central elements of, of worship when God's people gather. We sing together. We see in Colossians chapter 3 that we're to sing together spiritual songs to encourage one another. We are to pray when we gather. We are to give. We are to preach and teach and read God's word. We are to practice the biblical expression of the Lord's Supper and baptism. And friends, that's really about all that God prescribes. We're to do those things. And those things are to draw our hearts upward so that we behold, we sung it this morning, that we behold God in all his glory. When we gather together, when we walk through the week, Monday through Saturday, it's like our heads are in the fog. And the main point of our corporate worship is that we would gather and it would be like a giant fan that blows away the fog so that we can see God, we can behold him. And when we see God, to behold God is to be transformed. In fact, that's what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And I'm, I'm just off the top of my head. He says, the Lord is spirit. And when we, we see the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So the primary thing we want to do when we gather is we want to lift our heads above the haze of all of the things that we have going on in our life and see God. And the primary way that we see God is not through tone or setting or lights or an ambiance, but through God's Word. Now granted, I mean, there is boring and uninspiring ways of communicating God's Word. I, I hope that I'm not like that, but when we, when we open God's Word and we just resolve as a group of people to say, we're going we're gonna to look at this Word 
and we're going to strive and struggle and strain to see the glory of God and the centrality of the gospel and the goodness of grace and the, 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 the necessity of obedience. When we do that every week, there's a kind of posture and a, a kind of trajectory that it sets us on and we see the glory of God in his word. And it does something, it changes us, as Paul says, from one degree of glory to another. And word-centered worship is not at odds with spirit-empowered worship. So sometimes Christians wrongly will pit the Word of God, or churches that like to center on the Word of God, Versus the Spirit of God, as if those two things are at all. I mean, the Spirit wrote the Word. The Spirit works through the Word. And my fear is, is that people that talk so much about Spirit-led worship in an earnest desire to connect with God are pitting the Spirit against the Word and are overly focused on experience and emotion which should be fueled. I am all about emotions and experience, but it should be fueled from a right understanding of God's word. I, I want to say this respectfully and, and gently and with pastoral love, but I, I, I do think it will help make this point and maybe help some of you that struggle with this point. I came to faith in the Pentecostal charismatic stream of the church when I was in high school and was in that stream of the church for quite a number of years before I think that I came to a better understanding of the Christian life and the Word of God and theology in general. I don't mean to say that in a kind of condescending way. I'm very thankful for all of the people that led me to the Lord and that in God's providence He found me in that stream and I, there's a lot of good that I take out of that, a lot of earnestness. But I can remember being in some of those churches that I was part of in the early decade or so of my walk, and there was this almost this mentality that the height of worship was centered completely on emotional feelings. And I can remember being in several churches where even our gathered sort of singing would sort of take over, and it was almost like a... a a, a feather in our cap if the singing took us all the way through the service time and boy the spirit fell it was so wonderful what an anointed service we didn't even get to the sermon well now that might have been a commentary on the preacher uh, and people just were glad that there was no sermon preached <laughs> that, that and that that may be the case sometimes here i i i, I fully am aware of that but that is an an unwise and unbiblical pitting of experience against word. Word drives our experience. It drives our response. And here's my fear is that many people that are prone to that are a certain personality type that are particularly external or they process externally or they're particularly extroverted or exuberant. And that is one way. It's not the only way to worship God. And those type of people tend to, in an unintentionally condescending way, look down upon people who don't worship the way they do. And friends, that is wrong. 
Word-centered worship God is God-focused worship. And when we stare at the glory of God in the Word, it empowers, it fuels, it's spirit-empowered. And we, we glory in God in the uniqueness of how God made us. And we focus on God. We want to behold God when we gather. And we want to remove obstacles that keep us from beholding God. We want the room to be as lit as we can. I wish it was lighter in here. We don't want fog or lingering music when we're praying or reading scriptures. We don't want to play or manipulate your emotions. We want to remove distractions so that we can zero in on the word and that word can inspire our spirit-empowered response to God in the uniqueness of our personality and how he made us. And that is God-centered God-focused worship. Worthy worship is not only God-focused, it is to others serving. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. I love this text, man. This is a text. <laughs> you know that. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, in other words, because of what Jesus has done for you, to die for your sins. Friends, listen to me. This is the gospel. Jesus has died for you. You were separated from God. You could not become holy. You could not enter. You could not be reconciled to God. You were separated from him in eternal judgment. But Jesus became a man, lived a perfect life, laid down his life on the cross, bore the wrath of God, removed the judgment of God, reconciled his people to him. Because that, we can now be reconciled to God and draw near to him by, verse 20, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh and since we have a great high priest over the house of God friends that's the gospel because of what Jesus has done you can be reconciled and draw near to God friends don't 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 miss that that's the gospel in this message about worship don't miss the centrality of that truth you by nature as we prayed earlier have been separated from god because of your sin and not because of anything that you have done but because of what jesus has done has reconciled you if you are his he's given you a new heart you've trusted in him you put your faith in jesus and you are brought near to god that's the only way that a person can be saved, can be with God forever. To not do that is to be separated from him forever. And because of that, let us, verse 22, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. Then verse 24, so all of that is, man, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus has done, draw near to God and worship him. And when you're coming near, this is the mindset that you should have. In your God-focused worship, this is also a consequence of your God-focusedness, which is others. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So a God-focused worship doesn't make us just, you know, so sort of in this trance where we just don't notice anything. It's just me and Jesus and everybody else get out of the way. That's not biblical mature worship. 
God-focused worship is to behold the glory of God, the face of Christ, the beauty of the gospel, to be transformed by it from one degree of glory to another, and then to have our head on a swivel and see others around us and see how God might use us to encourage them. Friends, when we gather together, when we walk in this room, when we walk in this building every time we gather, whether it's a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday or for a Bible study, friends, we should have our heads on a swivel, beholding God and considering others. And again, I want to be careful here because I, I realize different people have different personalities and I do not want to, I don't want to throw an 80-pound rucksack on the back of an introvert and cause you to just feel terrible about yourself. Frankly, friends, I, I, I'm a kind of introvert. I am an extroverted introvert. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It's easy. It, I can get up in front of a crowd and preach, but you guys are a little far away from me. I mean, you, you just add more people. It's not going to bother me. But I got to sit and do small talk with somebody and ask them questions in a room of about seven or eight people. I start getting fidgety and looking at my watch and like, all right, well, when, when, when's this going to end? And so I, we're, we're complex, aren't we? Am I the only complicated person in here? Is it <laughs> All right. I don't mean to burden you with a kind of religious guilt, but I'm just saying that when we walk into this room, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you're not a Christian, and some of you know that you're not, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you're hearing the gospel. I hope the Holy Spirit right now, <laughs> I hope the Holy Spirit is right now grabbing your heart and causing you to see that you and your only hope is Jesus. But if you're a believer right now, let's confess and admit that we have been trained by our culture to consume and to demand excellence from everything around us. And we bring that into the church and it causes us to have a condescending, elitist, self-serving attitude. And it's the exact opposite of what the Bible calls us to when we gather together. He says, have your head on a swivel, introverts, extroverts, everybody in between, and consider, conspire. Think about how you can stir one another up to love and good deeds. It doesn't say wait for some program to sign up for. Don't wait to be asked. Consider you. The Holy Spirit is doing the asking. He's doing it now. Consider how you can stir one another up to love and good deeds. Most of you sit in the same place every Sunday. I like that. Continue to do that. When you shift seats, it messes me up, and I don't know where you are, and I get nervous. I worry about you. So thank you. Don't get stingy about your little seat. If somebody's there before you, don't, you don't have any right to it. But I like the way that you guys generally sit in the same areas. Here's just a simple way to live out this verse. Just, just right now, appoint yourself an under-shepherd of your row. And just think, oh, oh, there's people here. I'm going to learn their names. They're generally here most Sundays. I'm going to think about how I can care for them, pray for them, encourage them, drop them a note, whatever. Yes, those are practical ways that we can all serve each other. And part of serving one another, friends, as we detox ourselves from a consumer culture is bearing with one another's weaknesses. Friends, people, people in church culture, there's something about nursing hurts 
it is a huge obstacle for many people. And what do I mean by that? Pastorally, when I talk to people over the years, I, sometimes I, I'm concerned about people who they, 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 they build this sort of altar in their past to this time when they were hurt by the church. Now, I, I want to be sensitive here. I understand, man. I, I understand people have been hurt in terrible, terrible ways. And I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry. Some of you have been terribly hurt by, by leaders, by other people in the church. I, I get it. I'm sorry. But I think a lot of people, I think they make an idol and use as a kind of subconscious convenient excuse some pain that they experienced in a previous church, and they nurse that thing. They nurse it, and they hold on to it, and it becomes a kind of convenient excuse for them. And what you're doing in that moment, it's all about you. It's all about you expecting excellence from everybody else, but, but demanding grace for yourself. And you're doing the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us to do, to bear with one another's weaknesses. And friends, I want to say to you, I want to say to you this, that if that's you and the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on that right now, repent of that, repent of that. Don't leave this building and, and stop nursing on that. Repent of that. And then I want you to see this, that it's actually part of God's design to make you have to deal with other people's weaknesses. Because you have them, we have them, you will be failed. And what if it's part of the way that God works in our life to cause us to have to deal with the imperfections and the weaknesses of everybody else? I mean, come on, we talk about God's sovereignty all the time. What if he's sovereign even over the failings and inadequacies of our community? He is. Friends, you have to, you have to deal with the failings and the weaknesses and the inadequacies, inadequacies of the church's leadership. This church isn't all it should be. I'm not all I should be. We're going to fail you. And you have, a, you have a choice to make. Are you going to let that be the thing that defines you? Oh, yeah, if they would have been this. Are you going to take that all the way to heaven? Or, or, or are you going to see that no, God intends for me to deal with this, to absorb this, to have grace for that person, and then to bear with them as they bear with me? And to serve others and to get my head off of myself. The, one of the great marks of Christian maturity is self-forgetfulness. It's other serving. Three, let me move quickly. Worthy worship is wholehearted. And again, I want to be sensitive to different personality types, but it is wholehearted. What's this look like for you? Listen to Deuteronomy 6. Verse 4 and 5 is a wonderful phrase in the life of Israel that every child would have known and memorized. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Repeated a little bit differently in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Listen to what Jesus says in response to a question in Matthew 22, verses 35 and 40, as he summarizes basically all of the Old Testament. And one of them, a lawyer, asked a question to test him. 
Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Verse 37, and he said to him, this is Jesus speaking now, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We want to love the Lord with a wholehearted passion. We, we, want, we want to worship all of who God is with all of who we are. We don't want to go through the motions. Just some practical ways that we do this. I, I think, and let me, let me say that I think a, a direct application of this is that when we gather together, I think you should prepare for worship. We prepare for hunting season. We prepare for football season. We prepare for lots of things. We can also prepare for the most important thing that we do, which is gather together to worship God with the saints of God. I think you should get a good night's sleep on Saturday. I think you should endeavor to try and arrive at church a little early. I want to say this with grace because I know that some of you young parents and some of you young mamas, one of the, one of the hardest things to do in the world is to corral toddlers on a Sunday morning. Isn't there? There's like a, there's like a little special little demon that comes out on Sunday mornings. And his assignment is to make young parents' lives miserable. Amen. Is that demon only assigned to my house, or does he have a, a larger jurisdiction? Okay, I was just wondering. Just wondering. I, I get that. I get that. And you may not be in the season of life for this. You may, you may come in. You may come in parked crooked, left your door open on your car, just yelled at your spouse with kid with snot and cereal dried on their face, still in their pajamas, and you limp through that door. But if everybody else, if everybody else is there in a kind of other-serving sort of way, and then there's maybe some, you know, empty nester grandma in the 60s, like, yeah, I remember, and she's there to swoop on that family and love on them, man. Come on, beautiful things happen. Beautiful things happen. Right? And the love that that young family, that young mother experiences in that moment, it buoys her. And then a couple decades later, she's ready to give that same grace that she received. Right? Right? Come on. But there's a kind of wholeheartedness. We, we, we go to bed early. We, we get up. We bring our Bibles. We open it. And we sing robustly. When the, when the worship team is playing, we don't just listen or watch, but we sing robustly. Now, friends, I, I, I want to also be sensitive that there are different music preferences, different styles, different generations, and I get that. I think our worship team in particular does a wonderful and very difficult job of threading the needle and trying to connect with as broad a group of people that come to Crosspoint. I think they do a wonderful job of that. 
Of course they don't do it perfectly. But have you considered that part of you getting your eyes off of yourself is not having a bad attitude about that, but as best you can, entering in and singing robustly and posturing yourself in a way so that people that are around you, maybe a young Christian or maybe a person who is not a Christian, sees the way that you are comporting yourself in the gathered worship of your church, and they are either dissuaded or persuaded to worship the Lord by the way that you're holding yourself. Sing robustly, even if it's not your style. Man, I, 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 I think a mature Christian can worship in all sorts of settings and all sorts of cultures. And I don't think one particular music preference is clearly not outlined or regulated in the scriptures, which is why exuberant worship in Uganda is biblical, which is why liturgical worship in in, in formal church settings in other parts of the world, in England, for example, can be biblical. But we sing robustly. And we have a kind of mix. Here's the mix. Here's a phrase that we've used in the past. I want to reintroduce this to We sing with a kind of gladness and gravity. Both of them together. Gladness without gravity becomes silliness. And gravity without gladness becomes heaviness that nobody wants to be around. But biblical, God-centered, other-serving, wholehearted worship is glad and, and heavy. It's, it's, it's joyful and sober. It's, it's God-glorifying. It's gladness and gravity mixed together. Let me end on this. The final and fourth way that worthy worship is expressed is that it is Christ-enabled. It's Christ-enabled. We can only do this because of what Jesus has done I read that a little bit for you earlier in Hebrews. Let me read another passage from Hebrews chapter 13, starting at verse 12. So Jesus also, the writer of Hebrews is concluding about gathering. And he's kind of, it's a kind of utility drawer of last things that he wants to say to the Hebrews. And he says in Hebrews 13, verse 12, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate, meaning on the hill outside of the city, suffered on the cross, in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So the only way that you can worship, we've said this already, the only way that we can worship God is because of what Jesus has done. We have a great high priest who's gone before us. He's opened up a new and living way. Otherwise, we're just offering strange fire, unauthorized fire, and we will be burned by God if we don't worship him through his son. Maybe not today. Maybe he's not going to send fire from heaven and smoke you today in front of your dad and your uncle. But if you do not come to God through Christ, which is the only authorized way to come to God, which is through Christ, there will be a day when you will burn. You will suffer eternally forever away from him. And he is saying here that, therefore, he has, he has done this. He's, he's suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. We can come to God through faith in Jesus. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp. Let's go to Jesus and bear the reproach he endured. Let's endure this broken world. Let's, let's live in this world as worshipers. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, meaning Jesus, through him then, let us, because of the gospel, because of what he's done, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit, <laughs> the fruit of 
lips that acknowledge his name, we get to sing. We get to sing to God because of what he's done. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so we come to God through the Son, empowered by the Spirit, to make much of his name so that others might see and behold him too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this indictment on Israel. Thank you that you use it for our instruction. Lord, thank you that you, that we live in a period of redemptive history where we don't get burned up for offering unauthorized fire. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, make our gathered worship pleasing to you, I pray. I confess that I am not always the leader, the pastor, the preacher, the service leader that I need to be. Help my brothers and sisters bear with my weaknesses. Help us look beyond ourselves and focus on you and others with all of our heart as we're enabled by your son Jesus. And use, Lord, here's my prayer, use the corporate gathering of Cross Point to be a kind of aroma that edifies and transforms us into the image of Christ and is used to draw other people to the one true living God. Lord, if you would do that for us, we would be so, so satisfied. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.